Welcome to the American University of Beirut and our weekly program, Professors at Work. I'm Rami Khouri, your host, the journalist in residence at AUB, and our guest this week is Karim Madesi, Associate Professor of International Politics and the Director of the Graduate Program in Public Policy and International Affairs, and for many years he has studied international relations, the politics of the UN, and the global interaction among scholars who study international relations. And we will ask him about what he's doing now, what it, why it matters, and what they're discovering. So welcome, Dr. Magdasi. Thank you. Uh, let me ask you first, what is the main theme of your current research, and why did you choose it? I've started now a kind of new research project that deals with uh, international relations, but seen mostly from how it looks from the global south and the Middle East and from Beirut in our perspective. And this is a way that we can try to not just challenge, but complement the kind of main discipline of international relations, which is very American-centered, and kind of decenter it as part of a larger kind of research project that many people are doing these days. Uh, on uh, thinking about the way in which agency works from the global south, the way in which uh, resistances work, the, the way in which uh, lived experiences shape the way we can think about the international. So th these are the kinds of themes that I'm working on a bit more theoretically uh, at this point. And you're doing this, why? Because the way international relations has been studied, do you think has been missing something? Yes, I mean, the international relations as a field has long been dominated by sort of its as, as an American discipline and so always played along with what the main interests or understanding that America had about the world. So during the Cold War, for instance, it was all about the, just the American interest within the Cold War. In the post-Cold War, the, the IR discipline was all about kind of the, the triumph of liberalism and global liberalism and how the spread of democracy would work in other parts of the world. Uh, after 9-11, it was all about how the war on terrorism would affect or impact uh, American security. Uh, so in, in all of these kinds of phases, the IR discipline has looked almost exclusively from the American point of view in terms of policy and theory, and has effectively treated those in the Middle East or larger global South uh, with, with little interest. It doesn't really matter because they're not a great power, they don't come from great powers, and so they're not worthy of being studied as and, such. And that's why you can bomb them, make wars, absolutely, sanction yeah, them? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why you can bomb them as part of so the Cold War, uh, you know, there's the Soviet Union, the United States, and the rest is relegated to pure proxy wars. Right. So it doesn't really matter what happens in Palestine or what happens in, part, in, in Congo and parts of, of Africa, because ultimately that's just a side effect of the larger kind of global struggle between the Soviets and Americans. So what happens today when you look at the Middle East and the world today, it seems it's a different situation. You have Turkey, you have Iran, you have Hezbollah, you have uh, the UAE and the Saudis moving their armies around, making wars. You have popular mobilization forces in different places. You have all these new forces that are actively engaged in either politics or warfare. Uh, is this the kind of material that you're trying to analyze and to see how does this change the actual study of international relations? Yes, I mean, it's really interesting now because uh, we've, we've reached a stage or it's been happening over the past decade or so. I think during, you know, after the Iraq War of 2003, where there was an, a noticeable kind of decline of U.S. influence and legitimacy in the Middle East, but also in the larger global order. With the U.S. releasing its grip a little bit, you have a lot more potential to talk about autonomous actors 
within the Middle East, say, uh, and these are state actors, uh, but also non-state actors. We, we see a proliferation of non-state actors and networks that obviously have become, in a sense, quite autonomous to, to a degree, and that operate outside this larger American influence. So as the American influence has declined, you have a lot more scope to kind of think about uh, other actors in the region that might have not, not full independence or, you know, they operate without any kind of connection to the Americans or anything else, but there's at least an increased sense of autonomy. So why is it useful for me and my family here in Beirut, somebody and their family in Kansas or in Liverpool? Why does this kind of research and writing the distortions of traditional scholarship, why does that matter? What kind of impact do you think it might have? I think it's very important because as we expand and as this kind of you know, globalized world you know, continues to globalize and as the impact of climate change and, and other kinds of now we see the pandemic with the, the COVID, uh, we see that the, you know, we want to go beyond the cliche of saying the world is interconnected and actually start valuing people across the world and, and actors across the world that are not just simply in relation to the empire or in relation to the big hegemonic uh, player, in, in this case the United States, or perhaps in the future China or you know, other countries like this. And so the idea is to try to expand what we mean by the international so that we can uh, have a better idea of the way the vast majority of the world works and, and, and what, their, uh, what their experience is, what their sense of security is. So the IR discipline would look at security traditionally from the American perspective. What is American security? And then project that to the policy debates in Washington, D.C. Uh, there's a kind of revolving door between the think tanks and the, the American Academy and the American Pentagon and State Department. With, and with, with a heavy military angle. With, with, of course, with a very heavy military dimension to this. And these are all connected. Uh, I mean, there's an ideological route that comes from, uh, that partly comes from the academic discipline that feeds back into this and justifies, for instance, a military intervention. So we've seen this, interestingly, both from the kind of hardcore military neocon types but also from liberal internationalists that want to go spread democracy uh, over the past decade or, or so. And, and both of these have advocated a kind of renewed sense of military intervention. Uh, wh whether or not it's good in any particular case is not really the issue, but the issue is to try to look at how the lived or shared experience of people on the other side of this has an impact and whether, whether we should be studying this and whether the sense of agency, not just in this particular moment, but tracing it back historically, to show how those in the Global South have always interacted with those in empire or those kind of big hegemonic powers uh, from the very beginning. Uh, as you mentioned, I studied the UN, and if you look at the history of the UN and the politics of the UN uh, that I've looked at quite a bit, you see that at, at, at every phase from the Cold War, from its creation actually, uh, to the Cold War, to the post-Cold War till now, there's always this kind of interaction between the imperatives of first the British, then the Americans especially, what they want and what they see as the global order, but then resistances that immediately start going against it. So, you know, early on there's Palestine, there's Narrows, India, there's all sorts of resistances that happen that challenge this kind of larger order. And this, you know, and this, this kind of dynamic of kind of, you know, imperial or hegemonic powers, but then the resistances to it is what, you know, we would say now kind of creates world order. So it's not just unidimensional. So then we need to go beyond that as well and start saying, okay, it's not just these big blocks. There are also people, and there's also shared experiences in the kind of everyday type politics, and that we have to go beyond 
the normal way that international relations looks at these things and connect them more and more, which is more interesting, I think, with area studies like Middle East studies, with uh, other parts of humanities uh, that, that, that you know, drill down more closely to the way people live. And so the idea is to try to connect this larger international dimension or global dimension with the everyday politics that's going on. And I think it's, it's an interesting thing and you cannot talk about the global south. Oh. without making that local, international, regional connection, right. which has always been there. It's just that it's not been made visible through international relations, through the discipline of international right. relations. I know you've worked with colleagues in many different places around the world, in Europe, North America, Middle East, uh, Asia, Africa. You've had colleagues in, in book projects and conferences and things you've done. Have you found that what you're talking about now in relation to the Middle East primarily is also true in other parts of the world? Is this a universal issue? Yes, uh, definitely. And in fact, I would say the Middle East may be, we, we may be lagging behind in that sense. Uh, certainly in South Asia and China and places like this, there's a, I don't say booming, but there's a, there's a they're definitely in Latin America for sure. Uh, there's a lot of uh, intellectual and academic uh, studies that are trying, that have been trying for a long time to come out of the margins and kind of speak back to the kind of dominant modes and approaches within international relations. And that's really important. I think it's interesting to try to understand why it is, in fact, that the Middle East has been lagging behind in this sense, academically or intellectually. And I'm not talking about those in the US studying the Middle East because that's a different kind of situation. But why there's less indigenous uh, scholarship within international relations that's far behind what, what, for instance, there would be colleagues in Latin America or South Asia mm -hmm. and places like this. And, and you know, there's, there are obvious reasons, and then there's other reasons that are also interesting to, to maybe explore as well. So, are you saying that we are still an intellectually colonized region in the study of IR? I don't like to use those words in this context at all, uh, but I would say that we are the region that's been most intervened upon <laughs> systematically for the past uh, hundred years, as you yourself have Right. very eloquently written about yes. a lot recently. So the idea is that there's no region that's been attacked militarily, politically, that's been divided military, politically, mm -hmm. conceptually, you know, the whole question of Orientalism, all of this stuff. We've been under direct intervention and division for over a hundred years. And, and this mm -hmm. continues to this day. You look at Syria, look at Libya, look at, you know, you can look just across anywhere you want, Iraq, across, the, across the Lebanon itself, here we are. So across the entire Arab region, uh, it's, there's a constant sense of meddling and intervention that, that is like no other region in the world. Right, so, but there's two elements that come into this picture. One is the regional countries, big and small, but people like the UAE, Turkey, Iran, Israel, others who are sending their troops all over the place and uh, getting involved. And the second element is the United Nations that was created in 1945 to bring peace and stability and security and equal rights to the world. Uh, so how do you, you, sitting in your classroom with your students looking at these issues, how do you reconcile the fact that you've got all these new small and medium powers in the Middle East acting on their agency and, and setting agendas in many cases. If you look at what the Turks did recently in Libya, if you look at what Saudis Emiratis did in Yemen, so there's uh, and the Iranians in many places, that many Middle Eastern countries are actually now driving the political changes. Whether they're good or bad, that's for history to decide. Uh, and then the UN tries to come in with this global set of norms. Are these reconcilable? 
Yes, I mean, I, 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 you know, as you know, I've studied in, in my previous, in my you know, ongoing, but my sort of biggest amount of research comes from looking at the United Nations in the Middle East. And in my edited book uh, with Vijay Prashad called Blue Helmet, uh, The UN and the Arab World, uh, we look very much at, at this interaction between the history and politics of the United Nations and the way in which the Middle East has helped shape the UN. So the UN has helped shape the Middle East. Uh, look at Lebanon and look at Palestine as obvious examples. And at the same time, the UN's interaction with the Middle East has helped shape the UN itself. So the whole, for instance, the most obvious example is the creation of the institution of peacekeeping, mm -hmm. which was not in the UN Charter, was created because of, you know, around the Arab-Israeli conflict. So right. they had to come up with this mechanism called peacekeeping mm -hmm. to resolve this thing. The, the idea of the political uh, rapporteurs the, for the Secretary General was created as well on, for the question of Palestine. Uh, refugees, the Palestine question is the only one that has its own dedicated agency that deals with refugees. Mm -hmm. uh, humanitarianism, the, the responsibility to protect was the first one militarily enforced was in Libya recently. Uh, so, you know, we can go on and on and on about how the UN and global order kind of, you know, interacts with the Middle East uh, as a way to both try to impose a certain order but also the pushback and the resistances to that helps limit or kind of create a, a different kind of order. And, and it's that agency and those resistances that I think uh, has been lacking in terms of the study and appreciation of, of this kind of uh, this idea. Uh, I've looked at, um, I'm still working on a book on the 2006 war here in, in Lebanon between, you know, between the Israelis and, 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 and Hezbollah and sort of, uh, and the Lebanese on the other side. And I'm looking at that through, as I've done for a while now, looking at it through the prism of the UN. Mm. So looking how the UN itself, how the texts, how the resolutions, how the debates, how all of this was perceived and written and, and certain kinds of orders tried to be imposed through these resolutions, through these texts, uh, but ultimately because it's so ambivalent, because there was no clear winner at the end, it's just ambivalent, and this ambivalence, I think, now reflects the international order that we are living in today. And that's why it's even more interesting to try to look at actors beyond the U.S. and beyond the kind of big traditional powers. But as you do this, you suddenly have a phenomenon like President Donald Trump. And you just wrote an article recently in one of the uh, academic journals called Teaching Trump's America First in and from Beirut, in which you discuss some of the challenges uh, of uh, teaching American foreign policy and international relations uh, under an American president who is very erratic and inconsistent and, uh, and other issues. Uh, and then in the end, you, at the end of the article, you, you end up saying that the classroom in Beirut is actually a laboratory in which you can um, analyze the long history of Western um, colonialism, imperialism, foreign policy, intervention, whatever, from the perspective of the people in the Middle East and their lived experiences of insecurity. So what do you mean by lived experiences of insecurity? Well, I mean, th this, is, this is sort of, this is the research project that I'm developing now. So this is sort of the beginnings of this, and it includes, interestingly, both research and kind of scholarship, but also kind of pedagogical, you know, talking and thinking about the pedagogy of teaching from the Global South, and mm -hmm. in my case, from Beirut. Uh, the, the idea, as I, as I sort of alluded to from the beginning, is if you're looking at, at Trump and you can either say, okay, there's this US policy that does X, Y, or Z, and there's a, here's the, the IR toolkit that can study this, the realism and liberalism and you know, constructivism. You can also then look at it, and you, of course, this is important, and it's not to say that you throw this out, of course not, but to supplement or to complement this, 
uh, there's the idea of saying, okay, what, what is it that security looks like from Lebanon, from Beirut? So when you talk about uh, the war in Syria, then you have a spillover of refugees that we interact with on, a, on an everyday basis, as everyday politics. So it's not just refugees in this kind of, as, a, as an object of study in this kind of big sense of the word, and so how do we send humanitarians to kind of help refugees, but it's rather as, as, you know, experiences that we interact with, and these are people, these are, you know, these are human beings and people that we interact with, and that usually are not part of how we, how we think about international relations. I mean, anthropologists may study this, uh, mm. sociologists may study that, but it's not really done on the international relations uh, scholarship. And the idea here is to try to, as I said, I mean the claim, it's, it's me but it's also a, a series of colleagues that we've been working with, try to try to link this sense of a shared experience that we have here or in other parts of the world to this larger uh, idea of the way in which global order is produced and the international is understood. And I think it's really interesting today, we're talking about Trump, who, who is the first, I mean I sort of try to make this point, uh, borrowing as, as well from Hassan Hajj's uh, very interesting work that Trump may be the first of the kind of U.S. presidents in this, I don't want to say post-American era, but in a declining American era that recognize, who, who recognizes that U.S. power, global power is coming to an end. And so this America first strategy is a way of, of, of trying to bring the, the, this, the material and ideological sort of approach back to America and sort of saying, oh, we don't care about the world, we only care about ourselves. Right. It's a kind of recognition that their role globally may be you know, lessening, and maybe he's the first president that recognizes this. And he, of course, uh, pulls out of a lot of these international treaties. That's right. He's pulled out of the climate change agreement. He's pulled out of uh, 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 the WHO now in the middle of a pandemic. He pulled out of, he defunded UNRWA, the Palestinian mm -hmm. refugee agency that the Americans had supported uh, from, from this, in fact, helped create from the very beginning. So he's, he, you know, he's made a point of pulling out of all these international institutions. And the irony, again, this links to my UN research, is that, of course, the UN itself and a lot of these post-World War II international organizations and institutions are, are all kind of, you know, not creations of America, but, but reflect the kind of American liberal order and liberal economic order as well, to which there was a lot of resist resistances. But the idea of the U.S. today getting out of these institutions and opposing these institutions, and we saw recently they, they've attacked again the International Criminal Court again. Yes. So all of these things kind of suggest that the Americans who, who had total hegemony, let's say, over these kinds of international institutions, now see them as enemies. Mm -hmm. And so what does that tell us about where we are today? And mm -hmm. so how do we study this? How do we look at this? And do you have many opportunities? Do you create opportunities to discuss these issues with your colleagues in the United States and Europe and other Western countries? Yeah, there's, I mean, th this, this is why at the beginning I, I mentioned this. What's really interesting is this, this global turn in international relations, what's called, you know, global IR. It, it, you know, it was very much on the margins, but recently it's become, it's coming in, not mainstream, mainstream, but it's sort of coming into a little bit more to the kind of, you know, you, you can go to the International Studies Association and have panels on this kind of thing. And so there, of course, these are places where you can meet colleagues, where there are now several you know, very good books uh, uh, written and edited on kind of IR approaches from outside, from China, from South Asia, from the mm. Middle East, from, you know, different parts. But also, you know, so that is not to be parochial about it, say, oh, we, you know, we have things that you don't have. No, right. of course not. But it's more this interaction, it's more recovering what we mean by the international, looking at this and seeing how those outside the West and the North can contribute to the ideas of international relations and so to, to better understand the way the world works. Mm. Last I, I, can I just make a point mm. here? Which, yes. Because from the previous thing, which is that when we're looking at the Middle East, 
Uh, and we're looking at, at the, you know, we talked about the everyday politics and how this connects to the international. Well, if you look today at the United States and you see the Black Lives Matter movement, and you see this kind of anti, uh, you, know, the, you know, they want to try, some are trying to defund the police. Well, the, the, the obvious corollary to that is to defund the military, the mm -hmm. Pentagon, mm -hmm. which obviously has a direct relation to this, you know, the never-ending wars in the Middle East right. and Afghanistan and these larger areas. So the kind of connection between these local movements what appear to be local movements and international movements are obviously very clear. Mm -hmm. And again, this is where it's really interesting that there's a lot of interesting scholarship coming out now that's bringing again back the, the actual origins of the discipline of IR, which was very much connected to the racism and empire and, right. and hierarchy. And that then got buried by the more social scientific uh, approaches right. that kind of came to dominate. And last question, if you look to the future of IR, you're uh, doing some pioneering work by you created the, the, the graduate program in public policy and international affairs at the Isam Fadis Institute at AUB. And it's been very popular. There's been a huge amounts of applications and, and uh, students coming every year. Um, what's the link between public policy and international affairs that you tried to create? Again, this, this was, I mean, the, the program was originally, as you know, since you were the director of the institute and, and, you know, we worked together on this, the idea was to say, look, we cannot separate this, this, and this was about a decade ago when we began to think about this, that we cannot separate the idea of public policy, meaning inside a country, you know, in the Arab world, certainly, but anywhere else, with the concept of international affairs and international relations, because right. they're so, the, the intersection and the connections between the two are so great, it's, it's very difficult to think about them. So we wanted to create a program that would both study this critically and academically and theoretically, but at the same time uh, engage with policymakers and with people so that we could, again, make this connection between people uh, that are the subjects of all these wars and all these kinds of big policies and the theoretical and conceptual and academic uh, studies that never considered these people in the first place. Right. So, I mean, the idea was to try to, <laughs> to try at least, to try to connect these things and to build from there in a, in a modest way and then to try to build outwards again. Yeah. Well, it seems to have taken off uh, to a great start. So, um, we've run out of time. If you've just joined us at the end of our program today, our guest has been Professor Kareem Matnesi. Associate Professor of International Politics at the American University of Beirut and Director of the Graduate Program in Public Policy and International Affairs. Kareem, thanks for being with us. And Thank you. Keep, keep up your good work. Thank you.